The title of my sermon this morning is Seeds of Revival. Seeds of Revival. Uh, and if you, if you know, uh, know anything about um, kind of one of my favorite things uh, for me is to study revivals down through history. I love studying spiritual awakenings and revivals. had a very influential uh, professor in seminary that I wrote a book called Firefall, and I think it would be a great book if you're looking to pick up, pick up a book about spiritual awakenings and revivals down through history across the planet. Uh, Firefall by Malcolm McDowell and Alvin Reed, who is my professor. Fantastic book to pick up, so jot that one down. But one of the revivals that they talk about in this book is the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1857. The Layman's Prayer Revival of 1857. And it began when a New York City church, uh, actually called the Old North Dutch Reformed Church, uh, it's like they'd have about five splits along the way and couldn't figure out who they were. Um, but they were declining. Gonna go figure. But they were declining, and uh, they were sort of on their way out, almost to the point of closing their doors. When they reached out to a single 40-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere. And they called on Lamphere to reach the lost and the unchurched in their community right there in New York City. They had tried everything they knew and uh, there was basically no result. And the church was about to close its doors as I mentioned a second ago. <clears throat> but Lamphere was a businessman uh, that God called away from his occupation into ministry. And he felt compelled to reach men like him who at one time he had been trusting in gold instead of in God. And so as he stood on the streets of New York City, he looked around and he noticed all the frantic looks on people's faces and the fear and the anxiety. And so he tried everything he could from street preaching <clears throat> to passing out tracts. He went door to door and did witnessing, but nothing seemed to work for Lamphere. And so in desperation, he hits his knees one day and he just started begging God to do a mighty work in his city. And he went to his church and he proposed, I think it would be a good thing if we had a prayer meeting where we began to call on God and ask him to bring the revival that we want to see. And the church basically responded with aggravation. It was more like an annoyance, like, man, I can't believe we've called on this guy and he wants us to pray. We're hiring him to do something. We're hiring him to do the work and he wants us to pray. And so the church, kind of aggravated, agreed to go along. But Lanfear prayed by himself for the better part of that first hour. So they set up this prayer meeting. He kneels in prayer at the third floor, I think, of this old North Dutch Reformed Church. And he prayed by himself. And then he heard some footsteps coming up the creaky stairs. And one person joined him. And by the end of the hour, six people had gathered to pray. So not exactly what Lanfear was really hoping for in terms of a mighty revival outpouring of the Spirit. Listen to this. The following Wednesday, 20 showed up. On the next week, there was 30 to 40. And the meetings were moved from, uh, from monthly to weekly to daily prayer meetings. And one month later, over 100 people came to pray. Many of those being unsaved persons with no relationship to Christ, maybe decently moral people, but not believers, and they came under conviction of sin. And you began to see this turnaround right there in Lamphere's neighborhood. It says, by the end of the second month, three large rooms were now filled with people that were praying on a daily basis. And within six months, 50,000 people in the city of New York were meeting for daily prayer. And so instead of all of the, the frantic conversation of how am I going to make 
money during this financial crunch of 1857, instead of those voices, you began to hear the voices of people calling on God in the midst of some of the darkest days of our nation. And it was in those dark days, in the middle of those dark days, that the seeds of revival were planted and God began to send the fresh winds of revival and awakening to a city that was badly in need of God's healing touch. Matthew Henry says this, When God desires to do a fresh work, He sets His people to praying. A few, a few faithful given to desperate concerted prayer can provide the spark for a mighty revival. I read that quote time and time and time again and was so encouraged that if God wants to do something and He looks around and He sees people beginning to pray, that right there is God loves that. That honors His heart. And He is going to pour out His Spirit on those people and on that place. And when you look at the present state of our country today, and I'm not just talking about Capitol Hill I'm talking about look around just at the landscape of our school systems, look in our homes, look around our nation. Look at the poor health of our nation, not physically, but spiritually. Look at our churches. Look at the poor health that is prevalent in so many churches, in so many pews across our nation. People that have forgotten God and are trusting in themselves to provide. And I'm convinced we need more men like Jeremiah Lamphere. Who say, I can't do this in and of myself, but I need to be calling on God. And I need to gather others around me to call on God and ask Him to send a mighty spiritual awakening across our nation. Habakkuk chapter 3 is just that. It's a song of prayer that that Habakkuk writes out this hymn to God and and he sets it to music and he sings this prayer to God where he does a couple of things. He begs God to bring revival to Judah. And he stands in awe of who God is. He begs God to bring revival to his nation that has fallen away from him and began to follow the idols of the, of the people that live around them. And he stands in awe of who God is and what God has done in the times past. This song contains several significant features that make this prayer unique throughout all of Scripture. This is an incredible watershed moment right here in the Old Testament. The first verse contains a strange musical term. You heard uh, Karen talk about the word shigianot, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But it contains a strange musical term that you only see two places in Scripture. And it's right here in chapter 3, and it's in Psalm chapter 7 and verse 1. Verse 2, when we get there, you'll see is a simple prayer where Habakkuk is just begging God, please send revival to your people. And then verse 3 through 15 contains what's called a theophany. And it's the most extensive and elaborate theophany found anywhere in the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll talk about that and unpack that a little bit later. And then verse 16 to 19 at the end of the chapter, Habakkuk comes to the place where he realizes everything is going to get worse before it gets better. But Habakkuk's resolution to trust God is unfazed. He says, even if all these terrible things happen, I will continue to trust in you in the midst of some terrifying and troubling times. Habakkuk also uses some interesting names for God. and We're going to track these over the next few weeks. And the first name that he uses is Eloah. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it's a more distant name for God. The foreign enemies, the pagan people around Israel, use this name when they refer to God. And he's going to use these different names that become more and more intimate with who the Lord is. And at the end of the chapter, he calls him the Sovereign Lord. 
And so it's almost like as Habakkuk sings this song and he uses the different names of God, he's drawing closer and closer and closer in toward God in the midst of his trying times. Think about what we have a tendency to do during our troubling times. We pull away from God so many times. We pull away from Christian friends. We stop attending church because we just don't think we, that that's the place that we perhaps need to be right now. But what does Habakkuk do? As things get worse and his country falls further and further away from God, he uses these names that track him moving closer toward God in the midst of some very difficult times. And so this morning in verses 1 through 7, I want you to see two specific things. And these two specific things. When you study revivals down through history, you will see these two seeds of revival planted by God's people in difficult days. And then God begins to work. Let me give those to you now. Number one, we see Habakkuk begging God to send a revival. And number two, Habakkuk is standing in awe of God's greatness and his glory. And I would say this, this morning, if you're looking for a way to put some feet to this message, to apply what we're going to talk about this morning, these two things ought to be a part of every Christian believer's prayer life. When you come before God, you don't just come and say, God, here's my grocery list. Last night, Carrie got on the computer and she was looking at this new service that Walmart provides. And it's kind of like some of the other grocery stores. You can enter in what you want on your grocery list and you pull up to the front door. Uh, somebody with, with four or five or 12 kids must have devised this. But you pull up to the front door and they bring you your groceries. You're paid for them and they bring you your items and you're trusting them to get it uh, correct. Um, but, but when they bring those items to you, you have entered that in. You tell them what you want. And, and I'm afraid sometimes that's how we treat God. We sit down with our Bible open and we read a verse or two and we try to figure out, okay, how am I going to put this into practice today? And, and that's all fine and well. But we tell God what we want or what we think we need. Like his you know, whole job is to be the grocery service that meets us at the curbside and, and he's going to give us what we've ordered. That's not how it works. We need to follow models of prayer in Scripture and then institute those, kind of apply those to our lives as Christians. And that's what Habakkuk does right here, as he begs God to send revival and he stands in awe of who God is. And so first in verses 1 and 2, we see Habakkuk begging God to send a revival. Verse 1 says this song is a prayer by Habakkuk according to Shigianot. Now, the first question I asked on Monday morning, when I'm looking at this, is what in the world is a Shigianot? You have to figure that out. You can't just skip over it in good Bible study. Well, this word shows up twice in the Bible, here in, in chapter 3 and then in Psalm 7. The meaning is unclear. It's not exactly certain what the word means. But scholars do think it's probably a musical term that points to the mood of the song. You say, why are you going into all that? Here's why. The mood of the song. The root word for Shigianot means stumbling. And so it's likely that Habakkuk's mood emotionally, spiritually, was that he felt like he was stumbling through some dark and difficult times. And he wrote this hymn of praise to raise his heart up to God in worship. And so even as he stumbled through some difficulties, he said, I'm still going to sing God's praise. Verse 2. O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. 
In the midst of the years, make it known. In your wrath, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, I love uh, the way the NIV translates verse 2. If you have the NIV this morning, you're going to see it says, Habakkuk says, I've heard of your fame. The word in, in the Hebrew means speech. So report, fame, speech. They all mean basically, I've heard what's been said about you and I've heard about your fame. Have you ever met somebody who was really famous before? You ever just run into somebody at the mall or on the street somewhere and you met somebody that was famous? Well, I went to a, a pastor's conference about three years ago and uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine were attending together and uh, we, we walked out onto the back deck of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. Beautiful view, uh, just gorgeous place. And we walk out there and there is the keynote speaker for the day, Alistair Begg. You've heard him preach on the radio. And he's one of my favorite. I love to hear Begg teach the Bible, just the way he works through the nuts and bolts and details of the passage. So I walk out there, uh, and I, I want to meet Alistair Begg. I love uh, hearing him preach. And so we walk up to him, and my buddy who's with me, he's about three years younger than me, he walks up to this modern-day prince of preachers, just, you know, kind of uh, just tongue-in-cheek, but he walks up to him, and he goes, What's up, man? And I went, I looked over at my friend like, no, you just didn't talk to him like that. I mean, this is one of the great preachers of our day. Show a little more respect. And we still laugh about that from time to time. But you know what he did? He, he didn't look at him and say, young man, you should treat me with more dignity than that. He just kept on eating his ice cream cone and said, how about you? What's up? And so we just began to talk about all these just regular, normal things. And I thought, man, what a great, what a great guy. How kind and warm. I ran into him at another conference about a year ago. Nathan and I were at this conference. And he's outside, Nathan remembers, he's outside sitting in a rocking chair just speaking to people when they leave. Like it's his front porch and they're leaving and he's saying, you know, y'all come back, you hear? And, uh, and, and so I walk past him and I think, you know what, I, I'm going to speak to him again. And so I bought his book, I come around and I'm, I'm going to get him to sign the book. And, and you know what Beg does? When it comes my turn to talk to him, he begins to ask me questions. And he just asked me all these things about myself as if I'm the keynote speaker and, uh, and he's the guy that you know, I'm supposed to sign the book and he's coming to talk to me. He was so humble and he was so warm and approachable and friendly and down to earth. And I'd heard him preach, I don't know, a couple hundred times probably before. And what I found about him in person was even more real and more authentic than what you hear on the radio. He's a wonderful guy. And that's what Habakkuk is saying here. When I heard about your fame, I've heard all these different things about you, and I find them to be true. I find them to be real and accurate. It's likely that Habakkuk heard about God through attending temple worship. That he was a regular in the temple. Some people think he was even a priest or a musical leader. And so he was with God's people, hearing about God's fame and God's mighty works. And when you look at verses 3 through 15... The rest of the song is filled with references to God saving Israel and leading them out of Egypt into the promised land. And this is significant because this Exodus story forms one of the first frameworks in the Old Testament for how we understand God's power to save today. And when you look at the Exodus story, God going out for the salvation of His people, we see that here in Habakkuk chapter 3, we see Him crushing the head of the wicked. Who was the wicked in the Egypt, the Exodus account? The Pharaoh. And he wouldn't let Israel go. And so God gave him chance and chance and chance. And he hardened his heart to prove his glory over the most mighty, powerful man on earth. And he crushed the head of the wicked and he led his people out. That forms an early framework for us to see how God is mighty to save. 
And the way I just explained it, hopefully you're thinking, man, that kind of has a New Testament ring to it. It sort of sounds like Jesus. Well, that's because it is. It's pointing forward also to another Moses, another shepherd, who would come after his people and lead them out of a slavery, a far worse slavery than what the Egyptians were in. And he led them out and he crushed the head of the wicked through his substitutionary death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave. As we used to say in preaching class, that'll preach. Verse 2, it says, in the midst of the years. I love the NLT translation on this verse. In this time of deep need. It's a simple prayer where he says, in this time right now, Lord, we are in bad shape. And I've heard all about what you've done before. And would you do it again and show your power today? What a simple prayer. There's nothing amazing or elaborate. He's not putting on any tones as best we can read in the black and white. There's none of this, oh, heavenly father, thou art most holy. None of that. He just prays this simple prayer where he says, Lord, I've heard all about you. I've heard the great stories of the faith in the past. They anchor me, my heart, to your heart. And would you show yourself mighty again in our time? You think God honors that kind of praying? I think He does. I think Jesus prayed simple prayers. I think He taught His disciples to pray simple prayers. And Habakkuk wanted the glory of those days back. He said, Lord, show your glory powerfully in our day. But can I say something? It's not the glory days that we need to go back to. It's not the glory days we need to get back to. We don't need to return to those days. We need to return to the glory of those days. Where God's people came together and prayed together and poured out their hearts together and talked about unconverted lost neighbors around them together and begged God to save people and do it in a mighty fashion. It's not the glory days. It's the glory of those days. And God is looking and longing for His people to come together and to call on Him. Not in an accidental, willy-nilly sort of like, oh man, three people gathered here and I guess we don't know what to do. The pastor didn't show up, so we'll just pray. I'm talking about an intentional, concerted, corporate effort where people say, this matters. Because God tells us to do it and He's shown Himself mighty in times past through it. We need to be begging God to send a revival, individually, but corporately together. Henry Blackaby says, all revival begins and continues in the prayer meeting. In times of revival, thousands may be found on their knees for hours, lifting up heartfelt cries with thanksgiving to heaven. What is Blackaby getting at? Saying we need to be praying together. We need to be praying together. If we want to see God do a mighty, amazing work, why would we not come together and do the thing we see in Scripture? And why would we not come and repeat what we've seen God's people do in the past? It's like saying, I'm hungry, but I don't think I'm going to go to the fridge and get anything. If we're hungry for God, shouldn't we come together and call on Him and ask Him to feed us and pour out His Spirit? On Wednesday nights at 645, you know what we're doing? In this room right here, we're meeting for corporate prayer. On the business meeting night, which is the fourth, fourth Wednesday of the month, we'll be downstairs for the business meeting. Every other Wednesday night, we are right in here. 
And, and, and we're trying to, we're going over the prayer list and we're talking about some of those things and we're sharing prayer requests, but we're trying to save as much time as we possibly can to do as much praying as we possibly can. Just simply calling on God. And I want to say this to you this morning. If you're looking for a way to apply Habakkuk 3 to your life, why don't you come this Wednesday night? Why don't you join us at 6.45 right here? As we have a, we've, had, man, we've had some great times of prayer. Ask somebody around you this morning who's been to those in the last couple of months. Wonderful times of God pouring out His Spirit. But we see Habakkuk begging for God to send a revival. The second thing we see is Habakkuk standing in awe of the greatness and the glory of God. We're going to look at verses 3 through 7. Someone, if, if you're new to Christianity, new to the church, you say, what do you mean by standing in awe of God? Are you talking about like when you see a cute baby or a puppy? Or, oh, no, 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 no. not talking about that. We're talking about a reverential sense of stillness and quiet and worship and wow. Wow. If you've ever been in a place of worship when God began to pour out His Spirit, there was nothing you wanted to say. And there was nowhere else you wanted to be. You just wanted to sit quietly and and watch and listen to see what God was going to do next. That's the sense of awe that we're talking about here in Habakkuk chapter 3. Verse 3 through 7 contains the first part of a theophany. I mentioned that earlier. Let me tell you what a theophany is. A theophany is a theological term that describes an appearance of God in great power and great glory in the Old Testament. Okay, so it's a time when God shows His power, shows His glory in the Old Testament in a powerful way. And it's usually linked, usually linked to two times in the Old Testament. To the Exodus account, when God leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And it's also linked many times to Mount Sinai, when God gives His law to His people and kind of defines them as His people. He's saying, you're distinct now from the nations around you because of this law. And we see God pictured in this theophany as a mighty warrior going out for the salvation of His people. And it's this glorious picture of God from Israel's past that spurs Habakkuk on to continue calling on God in the midst of troubling times. In verse 3, you'll see it says, God came from Timon. The name that he uses for God here in the Hebrew is Eloah. And it's one of the, the names that the foreign nations used to refer to God. Now, they didn't know God, but they could see in creation His power. And so they called Him Eloah, the God who is powerful over creation. It's a distant name of someone who doesn't really know God, but they know a little bit about God. And so Habakkuk uses this term here because when he looks at the Exodus account, he sees God's unlimited power being shown over creation as he accomplishes the salvation of his people. Look again at verse 3. It says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. Well, when I was doing my study this week, one of the first questions is, where are Timon and where is Mount Paran and why is God coming from those places? What was he doing there when he was over in Timon and Mount Perrin that he had to come this way? Well, you'll see a map on the screen behind me. If you guys will pull that map up in the back. Ancient Egypt. And what I did on the left side, you'll see some words are kind of cut off, sort of funny. I tried to block out everything I could. So the map was extremely busy, but I tried to block out everything I could so it would be easy to follow, easy to look at for the first time. On the right side over here, you're going to see that blue circle that I've put around a couple of places. 
right over top of Ezion Geber, or Geber, you see Edom and Paran. Okay? So when he talks about God came from Timon, Timon is more than likely the whole region of Edom as a whole. So when he talks about God coming from that area, he's talking about that whole area in green that's sort of overlapping with the blue circle. And Mount Paran was another name for Mount Sinai. It's talking about the whole Sinai Peninsula. So I put this map up here so you can sort of picture what's going on. The people were in Egypt. God left, uh, led them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and then they began to move north. And as they moved north, they moved through Timon and they moved through Mount Paran or Mount Sinai where God gave the law. So what you see Habakkuk doing as he's singing this song, he's actually tracing the Israelite steps as they were led out. And as he traces their steps from Egypt to Canaan or to the promised land, he's singing these songs of these stories that God has used in the past to encourage his people. And what they do, I've said this twice now, but third time, what they do is this. These stories give Habakkuk an anchor for his heart. So when the winds of of adversity and fear and terror come along, his heart's not blown everywhere. His heart remains tethered to God. And when he looks at Egypt and he says, you know, God, you saved your people from the most powerful man on the planet. And you led them through the wilderness, through Timon, and through Mount Paran, and you gave us the law. If you can do that to the Egyptians, then here's what he's saying. You can do that to the Babylonians in the same way. If you can do that what you did in the past, then God, you can do the very same thing again in our day. And can I bring it back to 2016 for a second and just get intensely practical? This is a great reason why everyone in this place this morning should be in a Sunday school small group. You should be in some type of small group where you can build relationships and connect with other people and get to know one another. Because you know what happens in my group a lot of times? Someone will speak up and say, you know, that verse just touches on my week. And I just want to share this story about how I went through this struggle and God showed himself faithful in the midst of some difficult times this past week. Can I say this to you? What you're going through right now is not just for you. You're not an isolated part of the body. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a part of the body that belongs to the rest of the body. So when you come to a small group, it's not going to be accomplished in here in worship. When you come to a small group, a Sunday school group, and you share these stories of God's greatness and His glory in your life, what happens is this. Your anchor for faith that week becomes somebody else's. Because they hear the story of how God came through for you, and they say, you know what? If God can come through for them, then He can come through for me. And that's what Habakkuk's doing right here. When we study this hymn of praise, we look at Habakkuk saying, if you did it then, you can do it now. Verse 3 and 4 talk about God's splendor covering the heavens and the rays of light flashing from His hands, probably talking about Mount Sinai. Go study it. Smoke fills the mountains, thunder, claps of thunder and lightning and everything was terrifying scene. And you see God's glory at Mount Sinai. Verses 5 and 6 talk about pestilence and plague. If you're familiar with the Exodus account, how did God lead his people out? Through plagues, ten of them, that terrified the entire nation. And so God uses these to rescue his people. I love this next phrase. He stood and measured the earth. Some of your translations say, he stood and shook the earth. Um, 
Do you remember that commercial that was on a few months ago about the guy that was trying to fold the fitted sheet? You remember that? And he's trying to fold that thing and it kind of gets tumbled up and he goes, this is impossible. And he sort of throws it down. That's us when we come to the, the difficulties and situations we face. But it says here, God stood and shook the earth. He stood and measured the earth like a sheet. He shook it. And the ancient hills and the mountains, you know what they did? When he shook it, they sank low. They were obedient to God as he stood and and looked out over his world. This kind of language is standard language for a theophany in Scripture. Mountains and hills were pictures of grandeur and permanence and security. And all it took was for God to shoot a little glance at the mountain. And a little glance at the ancient hills. And they just sort of flattened out. You remember when you were in church growing up? You don't see this as much anymore, but some of you will resonate with this. When you're in church growing up, and you're kind of acting up, and you're picking with your buddy and everything like that, and what does somebody, I don't know if it was dad or mom or, or granny, sometimes granny's the worst, and granny looks at you, and granny shoots you that glance, and you're like, oh man, we're in trouble. And what do you do? Sort of sink low in the pew, you know, and the pastor's wondering, where are they going? What are they doing? You know, granny just gave him that look. That's what God does to the mountains. God just gave them that look and the mountains sort of just sink down. Even these mountains that surround us are nothing to the glance of our God. It's a poetic way of saying God is supremely greater than the enemy nations of the earth. Verse 7. Habakkuk says, I saw the tents. It's the first time he speaks in the, third, or the first person. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction or distress. The curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. You say, who are they? The people of Cush and the people of Midian. Can we pull up the the map again, Chip? Thank you. Appreciate that. If you look at the map again, the people of Cush and Midian lived in the region between uh, Mount Sinai and between Judah, Jerusalem, when they were going up through there. And so what he's saying here is that these two groups were nomadic. They lived in this region and they traveled around following their herds. And they lived in tents. They were Bedouin, uh, nomadic people. They were just kind of meandering through the area. And they lived in between Egypt and Canaan. And when they heard the stories of what God had done for Israel, the picture is they're huddled up in their tents and they're just shaking. And you can look at their tents and see even the curtain doors of their tents shaking because they're all fearful that somehow God's gaze is going to turn on them. They didn't have anything to do with this, and they're just hoping maybe he'll just leave us alone. That's the picture of what happens in unbelieving people when God begins to move within his people. You know what happens? When we begin to fall on our knees and come together and pray and ask God to do a mighty work, it does, it's not just evident to the people in these walls. People begin to see it in our lives. And they hear about what's going on at that church down the road. Hey, you need to go check that out. God's doing something. I don't know what it is, but boy, He's doing something. And people begin to hear about the stories of God's people experiencing His glory. And so what we have so far is Habakkuk tracing Israel's journey through these stories of faith. He begs God to send revival and he ponders God's greatness. Now go all the way back to the beginning of the book. Remember we set the table. We talked about the setting. Put all this in this song back into the original setting. Of this hymn of praise. Every good song has a reason why it's written, right? Let me give you the reason right here. Judah's backslidden into idolatry, and God tells Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians. That terrible, awful, bitter, impetuous people, they're gonna come and punish Judah. And Habakkuk says, How can you do that? 
They're worse than we are. You're going to use them to punish us? That doesn't make any sense. And he wrestled with God over the whys of his life. Do you see the clear application? Habakkuk never got an explanation from God about why this was going on. He never said, Habakkuk, let me explain to you why I'm doing this. But when he could not trace God's hand, he resolved to trust his good, kind, loving, compassionate heart. And when he remembered everything God did in the past, he stood in awe. He was speechless. You say, well, what about the bad days? Did the bad days of Judah still come? Did the bad things still happen to Habakkuk and all of their people? Yes, but you know what he told Habakkuk? The best part, the best days are still out in front of you. Is that not the great news of the gospel? Is that not what we hang on to? That in the midst of everything falling apart in our world, we're not hoping in a politician to get in the office in a few months and fix things? We're hoping in an eternal risen Savior who loved us enough to die for us even while we were still sinners. Was resurrected from the grave. And the scripture tells us He's coming back in power on the clouds to take home everyone who is called on Him in faith. The best days are still out in front of us. Aren't you glad? You shouldn't want to go back to the the glory days. Your glory days are out in front of you and you've got a lot to look forward to, believer in Christ. And so the end result of Jesus' return is our motivation for planting seeds. Josh, why do I need to pray this prayer of revival? Why do I need to stand in awe of who God is? Because the return of Christ motivates you to plant those seeds. You know the harvest is coming. A few months ago, Some friends of mine planted some pumpkin seeds in the ground about three months ago, four months ago, something like that. And they gave us some seeds, and they said, if you'll plant these, you'll have all these great pumpkins. Well, what did we not do? We did not plant the seeds. They sat in a bag on our our counter table in our house. But they went and they planted their seeds, just some simple seeds, put them in the ground, covered them up, and let God do His thing. But he does. They went back this past week, rode past their house, and in the back of their truck were the biggest pumpkins I've ever seen in my life. Huge pumpkins. Pumpkins of all sizes. Some crazy looking pumpkins. Beautiful pumpkins. Just pumpkins everywhere. Because they had planted those seeds a few months earlier. I think that's how revival works. It might not happen right now. It might not happen next week. Might not happen next month, but God doesn't call us to worry about the harvest. It's His harvest, remember? Matthew chapter 9, the Lord of the harvest. But He does call us to plant seeds that we see in Scripture through prayer where we beg God to work and we stand in awe of His greatness and His glory. And so this morning, I want to invite you to join me in beginning seven days worth of praying and calling on God. To send revival to our church, to our community, to our country. And this morning, Emily's going to come and she's going to lead us in a song. It's a beautiful song. I've been singing it all week long. And I want you to just let your heart stand in awe of the greatness, the goodness, the strength, the glory, the majesty of who God is. As we beg God to bring revival to us.